Holistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, did you think I forgot about you because I didn't get a podcast out last week? Well, for what it's worth, I felt guilty all weekend about it, and uh, I don't even have a good reason. The one thing I did accomplish last week, though, was uh, to drive to L.A. and spend some time with uh, Gary Fisher, who you can uh, hear in my podcasts number 15, 97, 98, and uh, 156, where Dr. Grobe and I spoke with Gary about his uh, work many, many years ago in which he healed autistic and schizophrenic children using LSD and psilocybin. It was uh, really groundbreaking work, and it's uh, a real tragedy that his research was shut down by the U.S. government, uh, not yet to be restarted, I'm afraid. Although we didn't have any kind of a formal conversation that would lend itself to a podcast, I did come away with a story he's been promising to tell me for a long time, and I have to admit that it was uh, kind of a letdown considering the unrealistic assumptions I had about it. The uh, The story is about Timothy Leary's first LSD experience, and uh, it took place right after Timothy returned from his first mushroom experience in Mexico. And at the uh, at that time, uh, Tim had a woman friend who was also a good friend of Gary Fisher's, and uh, she brought the good doctor over to Gary's house uh, to have the experience. And uh, I don't remember reading about this in flashbacks or anywhere else for that matter, probably because there isn't all that much to report. Uh, Gary told me that, uh, as he always did for somebody's first LSD experience, he gave uh, Timothy uh, 400 micrograms of Sandoz acid. And uh, Gary was the sitter and didn't take anything. But when I asked for more details, uh, about the only thing he would say was uh, that Timothy had a hard time. And uh, if you've ever taken 400 mics of acid yourself, and uh, particularly if it was your first acid trip, well, you know exactly what uh, what he means by that. But uh, I guess I should save these stories for my next Timothy Leary podcast in a few weeks. Because uh, today we're going to hear the next part of the Terrence McKenna podcast that I played a week ago. First, however, I want to thank fellow saloners Lynn R., Mark C., Nigel B., and Benjamin H., all of whom uh, sent us some of their hard-earned cash to help offset the expenses associated with these podcasts. And uh, Lynn, Mark, Nigel, and Benjamin, thank you all ever so much for your support. And uh, Benjamin, that that was overly generous, and uh, I hope you consider yourself all donated up for life now, because uh, I sure do. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't also send my thanks along to those of you who have uh, purchased a copy of my novel, The Genesis Generation. And uh, since it's only available through my own website, I actually get to see who's bought a copy, which uh, somehow makes the whole writing experience seem a little more intimate. So uh, thank you one and all. It's uh, great to know you're there. Now, uh, let's get on with the program, as they say, and... uh, To be honest, I almost cut out the first part of what we're about to hear because, well, we've already heard the same information from a variety of sources. But uh, since there were so many people who commented that this was one of their favorite McKenna talks, I thought it better to just leave it unedited. 
That said, uh, I have to admit that it did give me a warm, fuzzy feeling to uh, hear him once again describe various psychedelic experiences in uh, what I consider his best setting, and uh, that is a relaxed outdoor setting. Now, uh, I also have to admit that I thought this section of the talk begins kind of slowly, maybe because it's uh, part of his rap that we've heard so many times before. But if you're like me, uh, I think you'll find that it builds up for more than one crescendo, including uh, why governments are so fearful about psychedelics, uh, and uh, it extends on to a discussion of UFOs. So uh, let's once again join Terrence McKenna on an April day in 1985 under the teaching tree at the Ojai Foundation in Ojai, California. Distinction now between what you have spoke about the last ten minutes, um, with uh, distinction between uh, the Fabergé eggs and uh, basketballs and self-transforming machine elves, and that that one may occur by going into the Amazon canopy and experiencing some type of preparation prepared by the natives. Is that organically mixed, um, earthly-based high similar to the synthesized DMT? Now, I have taken DMT many, many years ago, but it would seem that that the natives may describe it, at least, in a much different fashion than yourself. what is the distinction? And then, and then also, if you can hit on after that, uh, the distinction between that and psilocybin. Well, the difference is not as great as maybe your question implies. First of all, the the thing that is so interesting about DMT is if the only requirement is that you be able to hold the toke, and if you cough and lose it, then it's murky and mucked up. Uh, in the case of ayahuasca, which is what you're asking about, it's a, it's a, well, I'll explain to the group. Remember how I said the DMT is destroyed in your gut, so you have to smoke it. But then I added the caveat that unless you uh, somehow inactivate this enzyme system in your gut, which will destroy it, the DMT, well, it turns out there's a way to do that. The enzyme system is called monoamine oxidase, and there are compounds called monoamine oxidase inhibitors. If you take a monoamine oxidase or MAO inhibitor, then, and follow it with oral DMT, then the DMT will not be destroyed in your gut. It will actually be absorbed into the lining of the small intestine, a large intestine, and then passed into the bloodstream, and you will have a psychedelic intoxication. Well, in the Amazon, this has been understood by the shamans for a long, long time. And so they take two plants. One, Banisteriopsis capi, a large woody vine, a twining liana, 
and it actually contains a powerful short-acting monoamine oxidase inhibitor and they take this vine and they pulverize it and they uh, combine it in a large pot of water with the leaves of another plant which contains DMT it may be one of several plants it's usually Cicotria viridis then they boil these two things together and then for hours and then they pour the water off and save it in a in a jug and put fresh water on this com this mess of two different plants and boil it again for hours and then they pour the two water fractions together and they get rid of all the solid matter they throw it away it's now been cooked for six to eight hours and they take this watery fraction several gallons and they drive it down over a hot fire until they get something a, a, a dark brown thick liquid that is truly horrifying uh, to ingest because the taste is so ghastly because all the salts and sugars and God knows what else have been concentrated into this stuff but this is now a, a beverage a liquid I love it that in the literature they call it a psychoactive beverage <laughs> and when you drink it the the compound from the from the woody vine, harmine, inhibits the MAO uh, and, uh, and the DMT passes through and enters the bloodstream and instead of a 10-minute experience that reaches the apex of intensity in two minutes, you get an experience which is drawn out, stretched out over about four to six hours now usually this is not um, it's a psychedelic experience it's similar to mushrooms in some ways but if you really make it stiff if you really put the pedal to the metal on the amount of Cicotria viridis or DMT containing leaf that you put into this stuff then after about two hours you can slowly by sitting in darkness by practicing breath control you can slowly manipulate it into a place where you then say you know by gosh and begali we've made it to the elf nest here it is so uh, I think that great shamans courageous shamans have always been able to make their way into the presence of this thing but I put the great qualifier in front of the word shaman because in my actual field experience in the Amazon what I discovered was once it got you loaded enough to be comparable to say four grams of mushrooms most of these guys would look at you in horror if you suggested that it was only twice as strong as it should be. There, the shamans all over the world are 
have an ambivalent attitude toward these dimensions they go into. Very few just hurl themselves delightedly into complete boundary dissolution. I had a guy tell me once, he said, you think just because we run around wearing penis sheaths that this stuff is easy for us to do? Well, I've got news for you. It's as hard for us as it is for anybody. It's hard for human beings to surrender to something so strange. I could never get ayahuasca to carry me into the DMT mess until I made it myself. And then, with nobody, you know, holding my elbow and keeping me, telling me how much poetry of Aridus I should put in, I was uh, able to jack it up and jack it up until finally it was truly horrifyingly strong. And that's what you want. I mean, we're not interested in uh, colored lights and dancing mice here. So, um, so now let me see. Did I cover the waterfront? No. Comparison to DMT, to psilocybin. Psilocybin, in that uh, you explained one time in one of the past lectures that the earthy or UFO type images that appear from the psilocybin as opposed to more earthy mother goddess connection of the uh, ayahuasca. But I think if you push the ayahuasca hard, it all begins to migrate in this direction. Psilocybin, you know, I advocate five dried grams in silent darkness. Eight five, eight dried grams in silent darkness will give you the indistinguishable from a DMT flash. The problem is, you know, one thing about DMT that is both frustrating and liberating is that it's so brief. Basically, it's like a roller coaster. The great consolation is this is only going to last five minutes. If you climbed on a roller coaster of super intensity and as they dropped the bar over your lap, they said, oh yeah, this is the four-hour trip. <laughs> then you would say, well, you know, hold on. It has appeared, though, that by IV, which is mostly how I did it years ago, that it seemed that it was extended to about 30 to 40 minutes. IV DMT? Yeah. Do you mean that you, you shot it intravenously? You don't mean that it was a, a, a perfusion pump situation? No. No. Well, see, I've talked to to people who've done research on DMT and a surprising conclusion that comes out of those discussions is that shooting it is not as intense as smoking it. Shooting it... Well, yeah, it sounds fairly intense, but people who do both say shooting it can't lay a candle to. And, the re and this is a funny thing, I'll just mention it as an aside, Drug researchers love to shoot drugs into their experimental subjects. They love the syringe as the route of administration because you, all, you get better numerical data because you can measure the dose absolutely and then you hit them and you know they got it. If you smoke something, you may, you know, obviously when you can hold your breath no longer and you exhale, smoke comes into the room. That's not part of your dose. And sometimes there's a residuum in the bottom of the pipe. 
that's not part of your dose. So in the name of precision, people who've done research on DMT have always shot it. Even the recent study out at the University of New Mexico, it was by injection. I tried to persuade them to do a section with smoking, but this argument for numerical precision carried the day. But the effect of relying on intravenous injection like that is that no one in the clinical situation has ever observed or experienced the flash that I'm talking about. I don't think you can attain it except by uh, smoking. You know, how about the penis snuffs and the No, I've done those, and uh, that is, um, uh, you know, well, tell the truth, let the chips fall where they may. Highly overrated for several reasons. First of all, um, you have to snuff close to a tablespoon of these toasted and powdered uh, Anadonanthra peregrina seeds, and there's a lot of cellulose there. And so you do not absorb it instantly. The other thing is it's so physically unpleasant to do it that there's a tendency to hit to cut low on the dose because when the, the standard method of administering edema is you have a hollow reed, like a bamboo reed about this long, you fill it with this powdered toasted sawdust essentially, that has been reduced to flour. And uh, you get up on your haunches, and your friend comes over, and you put the tube up your nostril, and he blows. He takes a huge lung full of air, and he just blows as hard as he can. Well, the effect is like being hit in the face with a two-by-four. I mean, you stagger backwards, you salivate, it's intensely painful, you scream, you squirm around in the dirt, and then you get back up on your haunches, and by that time he has loaded the tube for the second nostril. And then the whole thing happens all over again, except now you're salivating, your eye is swollen up, your sinuses are filled with this gunk, and you do it again, same thing, scream, squirm in the dirt, so forth and so on. Then you stagger over out of the sun into the shade and sit with this, with your saliva just pouring out of your mouth. And after about five minutes, you begin to drift into a, a psychedelic state of some sort. But there is no sense of a rush, of a of the world into two halves, it's uh, not an effective route of administration. Well, how about what they call the chorus spirits? Oh, well, once they, get, once they get intoxicated, then they play this strange game, which is almost characteristic of this white Yanomamo cultural group. Guys square off. They stand about three feet apart from each other, and by some means, the equivalent of tossing a coin, 
it's been decided who will go first. So the guy who goes first is totally loaded on the stuff and he has mucus running out of his nose, saliva running out of his mouth, his eyes are swollen, practically swollen shut. He pulls back his hand and he hits the other guy right in the center of the chest as hard as he can. So the guy either loses his feet or doesn't anyway he grunts like a bull and stands there he also is in the same state then he pulls back and then he does it and they keep doing this until somebody is knocked off their spot and the when you interview them later about this what you're told is your ability to stand on your spot depends on how many of these Hakuli spirits you have inside your chest. And so they, this is some kind of Yanomamo psychology meeting the raw data of the DMT experience. I, I don't know what they're talking about, but it has something to do with the DMT things that jump in and, in and out of your chest when you smoke it, they believe that the that the the de they say the demon from the tree will live in your chest, and the more of these tree demons inside your chest you have, the more physically able to resist being knocked off your spot you are, and the more shamanically empowered you are. But this goes to a point I often make with my groups, which is. You know, one one ethnic group or one culture's drug is another person's pain in the neck. You know, I mean, I've taken awful drugs that the people, after it was over with, they would you'd say, you know, God, you guys do this all the time. It's really kind of, uh. And they say, yeah, well, it takes getting used to, and we really don't do it all that often, only ceremonies. and. You're right, most people are glad to get it over with and go back to the palm beer. Uh, your experience is basically that it's too caveman-like, it's very hard on the system biologically, and it makes it so that the time that you could be having in exploring these strange dimensions is somehow inhibited. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think in the Bina-taking situation that you ever get enough all at once to the synapses in sufficient concentration to deliver you over into what I'm describing occurring on the... ayahuasca and the snuff right after you drank ayahuasca. Strangely enough, though, those cultural groups do not overlap. You know, where there is ayahuasca, there is never Athena. Where there is Athena, if there is ayahuasca, there never is. There's no ethnography done right now on that. That may be an area where someone wants to explore by bringing in non-indigenous um, sources of ayahuasca into the Yanomamo area. Well, people are, you know, traditional people are surprisingly conservative. I mean, I've sat with ayahuascaros and done their brew and talked to them about DMT, and then they say, well, describe it. And so then I will describe it as I described it to you here. And then my best guy said, well, no, it sounds a little intense. Uh, I think I'll take a pass on it. Uh, you know, and he was my mentor in the domain of ayahuasca. 
it, it's pretty stout stuff. I think that, you know, shamans have always, you know, looked over the fence, looked through the keyhole, stepped through the doorway, but I think DMT, pure crystalline DMT, or ayahuasca specifically brewed to reality obliterating doses, uh, is the only way you can approach this place. Yeah. I'm wondering, on the experience you talk about, you're being taught to mention that. Yes. I've done it maybe 30 times. I haven't done it for a couple of years. No, DMT. I'm, I'm, uh, sometimes I think it's a young man's game, or sometimes I'm just getting chicken shit, you know. This is not a drug of abuse, let me tell you. I know people who say it's their favorite drug, and you say, well, when was the last time you did it? And they say 1968. And they're still processing to feel no need to go back and have the second look. What was the first part of your question? What kind of knowledge? Ah, the knowledge. The knowledge is interesting. The knowledge is they want you... They want me to make language that you can see. They, they absolutely are convinced that this ability to make things visible with sound can be taught. And that's what they want you to do. They demonstrate it. They say, see what we're doing? See what we're doing? Now do it! And you say, but, but, and say, no excuses, we don't have a lot of time, it's almost over. Do it, do it. And, and then you attempt to do it, and you discover in that place you can do this. But why this is so important, because when you come back to this world and listen to tape recordings of yourself doing it, it's, gibberish of some sort. It's a kind of neurologically driven glossolalia. It's like, um, you know, it's a language unhinged from the necessity of meaning. And yet, it is true that when you do it in that place, it's absolutely ecstatic. It's, It's like sex, but sex is sort of like a white light kind of thing, this is like a colored spectrum. If you could put the sexual experience through a prism and change the purity of orgasm into a a spectrum of stuff, then it would be like this language. It's pure poetry. It's poetry so thick you can literally cut it with a knife. And they want you to do this. And they are absolutely passionate about this is what we are here to teach you how to speak in a language that can be seen and you know a language which could be seen would be a kind of telepathy you know if you could see what I mean you would see my thoughts the way we communicate small mouth noises and the assumption of shared dictionaries 
an assumption which is never borne out by careful questioning is a miserable way to communicate. If we could see our linguistic intentionality, it would be the equivalent of seeing our minds. And so what they, this is what they want us to do. Now, maybe if one were truly dead, they wouldn't be so urgent about it. And they would be like a, a relative leaning over a bassinet and, and holding up objects and saying, look at this, baby, look at this. This is a bell or something. But the, definitely what they teach is in the domain of language. And it's not a teaching which can be said, like love one another, or, you know, if it's juicy, eat it over the sink. It's more an ability locked in your physiological structure that we're not using. They want us to speak in colored light. And their agenda is not mine. I haven't the faintest idea why that is so compelling. Well, that's a little unfair because I've given a lot of thought to it. But initially, I couldn't figure it out. Um, we'll, I'm sure, get more into this this afternoon. It is the little self-transforming elf machine informs me. Lunchtime. <laughs> Thank you for putting up with this. Uh, I appreciate your... Uh, silent scorn or whatever it is. <laughs> so we sort of had uh, something going before lunch. Can anybody remember what it was? Oh, well, I had a question. <laughs> it was the hallucinogenic snuffs used by the young among Yeah, and hadn't we done yeah, that? We've we done that. Yeah. Let's talk to you about it. Are you still doing questions? Sure, yeah. I, I got one I'd like to toss around. The whole idea of the shaman as having this hyperdimensional overview, and as you say, some of them say it scares me shitless, even the top dog. Okay, and that, and that, and other times you what you said you, you wonder why it isn't in headlines 11 inches tall. There seems to be something about the experience that is, uh, I don't know if self-selecting is the right word, or evolutionary selecting. Why isn't, why aren't there, why is there such a small percentage of people who actually end up, although you say everyone can do it, they do have the, the genetic possibility, but there's something more in the selective period that, um, where a shaman will come out because it is, as you say, an awesome responsibility and yet it's everyone's possible liberation. And then one, one last thing, another code to this. You, you mentioned that you don't think that it's the, the Bush or Reagan, etc. feeling that they just want to keep an economic grip as far as the, the sale of would-be hallucinogenic. Don't you think that there is some degree of teleological repression going on as well. I mean, you, you, you mentioned that, they, that, that you, you didn't feel that way, but I, I somehow, other times I've heard you feel that there definitely is. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, it simplifies the issue to say that it's entirely a money issue. 
Right. Because the psychedelics are used by so small right. a percentage of people that it doesn't rate the tremendous <coughs> institutional fury that is brought against it and where you really see the contradiction in uh, economic logic is uh, with pot. Um, I think that the subtext of the government's fear about psychedelics is that the, this quality that they have of dissolving boundaries causes people to question basic assumptions about how society is run. And I think this is true of any society. It isn't an American phenomenon. It's that if you take psychedelics, whatever you are, you know, Eskimo, Hasidic rabbi, quantum physicist, you will question your first premises. And you get millions of people questioning the first premises. And uh, then the powers that be become very nervous. It's interesting that the this whole phenomenon of the 1960s occurred because American commitment to universal public education reached, brought its first generation of people to adulthood in the middle of the 1960s because that universal commitment to public education began after World War II. After the establishment took a look at what this filling, you know, actually funding and building up great public universities and then filling them with inquisitive uh, young people, what the result of that was, that's when they decided to turn the universities back into trade schools for CPAs, which they did do. I mean, there is nothing like the level and the breadth of education and intellectual curiosity that was encouraged when I was going to school. Uh, that's all finished now. Now you're expected to do your data entry job, watch a lot of TV, and keep your mouth shut. And that, this is what we expect of our college graduates. So really, there was a crisis of faith in American institutions which was only exacerbated by psychedelics. It was a combination of educating people to the actual traditions of Western civilization in large numbers for the first time, and then giving them psychedelics, I mean, or having them exposed to psychedelics, and people began to ask questions for which there were no answers. And the response of the establishment was to suppress this. I mentioned cannabis, you know, you're all probably aware through the work of the, the hemp uh, people that cannabis holds many benefits not necessarily related to its properties as an intoxicant, but as a source of food, lubricant, plastics, fuels, etc. The reason the establishment is so hysterical on the subject of cannabis is because it erodes loyalty to the industrial state. I mean, that's why, if you look at the pharmacological profile, let's contrast two familiar drugs, one caffeine, 
We have the medical data which shows that it can contribute to fetal malformation. We know that it damages the liver. We know that it, uh, if abused, can cause uh, severe stomach ulcers, so forth and so on. <coughs> Cannabis, and vast amounts of money have been spent trying to find something wrong with it, and they're still digging, folks. I mean, they've decided it doesn't cause tits on statues. <laughs> you know, all the screwy things they've come up with over the years uh, have had to be abandoned. Why is caffeine enshrined in every labor contract negotiated in the Western world as a sacred right of all workers twice daily? And why is cannabis, uh, you know, you can lose your house, your automobile, your bank account, your art collection, simply because you had six plants in the back 40, and your children. Why are the, why this disparity? Well, what is the effect of caffeine? It uh, makes it possible for you to perform your duties during the last three hours of the work cycle with efficiency equal to the first three hours of the work cycle. It allows people to tolerate spinning widgets onto gombers until help freezes over without a thought ever rising in their mind that maybe this is a ridiculous way to spend your life. Cannabis, on the other hand, people aren't so interested in going to work. They'd rather lay around and make love. They don't want to watch TV. They'd rather smoke a doobie and have a conversation with a friend. In other words, these things promote activities which don't make anybody any money and cause people to question the institutions and the, and the uh, social philosophies that are being shoved down their throats. If the playing field were level, uh, caffeine might well be a prescription drug, not that I think that's a good idea, and uh, cannabis, I think, would probably be freely available. The most dangerous drugs in society in terms of detrimental social impact are alcohol and tobacco, the two most freely available. I mean, every street corner of every city, they're peddled uh, in vast amounts. We have a, a very crack-brained approach to the problem of drugs. We're not the only society. All societies seem to do this out of a possible spectrum of 20 or 30 depressants and intoxicants. Most societies select three or four, which they hail as harmless, and then the rest are, you know, the seed of Satan. And this is this attitude is persevered in against all scientific data, against all medical research. This is just what people choose to think. The problem is we don't have the luxury of this kind of ignorance anymore. The amount of revenue that could be accrued from uh, cannabis economy the pressure that could be taken off petroleum extraction if cannabis were part of the picture. Um, all of these things uh, make it incumbent upon us, I think, to think more creatively and more honestly about which drugs really are posing uh, problems for us.
What was the first part? The other question really relates to this is why are there, given the fact, why, are, why is the percentage of shamans so small relative to a population because of the fact that, as you say, there is fear in going into, there is attraction and fear in going into these other realms. And there's obviously maybe some self-limiting aspect of the, uh, the hyper-dimensional uh, view, which there's some dynamic going on because everyone has an equal opportunity to go to this hyper-dimensional, but very few of their own initiatives really push to that point where you are definitely within the hyperdimensional realm. Well, there are different things to be said about this. I mean, first of all, um, one of the, there are what are called uh, biochemical differences in individuality, uh, and never more so than in the matter of drugs. Uh, people are very different from each other. Years ago, I took a course from Sasha Shogun um, at Cal, and uh, at one point he brought in some substance, I don't know what it was, and this was a class of 600 people, and passed it around and asked everybody to take a sniff of this bottle. Well, 598 people pronounced this stuff completely odorless. Two people were almost violently ill from the overpowering odor of this thing. They possessed a gene for the sensitivity to this compound that caused it to be for them overwhelming, for everyone else unnoticeable. And we're surrounded by these kinds of individual biochemical differences. In traditional societies, shamanism is often a family business, and it may well be that this is because ability to handle these psychedelic substances uh, and to really get mileage out of them is a genetic endowment of some sort. I mean, cannabis, again, it provides an interesting example. One of the commonest things you hear people say about cannabis who don't smoke it is they say, I, I used to or I tried it, but it makes me paranoid. Uh, well, uh, if, to the people who use it, this is inconceivable. In fact, it's almost an antidote to paranoia. Uh, because it seems to make things appear more Taoistic, more integrated, it all makes more sense. These are biochemical differences that need to be studied. You know, different racial groups have different relationships to intoxication. I mean, I think it's probably there is some truth to the idea that the North American Indians had a susceptibility to distilled alcohol that the Europeans who had been dealing with it for a couple of centuries by the time they arrived here didn't have because the North American Indians represented a, uh, a closed gene pool never having been exposed to this there was no selection for being able to handle it uh, and then there's another issue in relation to your question John which is 
first of all, you know, some people say, well, not all shamans take hallucinogens. Well, true, and I've excited some people's ire by suggesting, but all real shamans <laughs> do. And, uh, you know, saying that somebody is a shaman, I mean, imagine if simply being able to rave and exhort on the subject of the four Gospels qualified you as a man of the Lord. Uh, actually, you have to sort through dozens of so-called preachers to find somebody you would be willing to leave alone with your chickens. Well, uh, you have to sort through a lot of uh, people who claim to be shamans before you find somebody who really is one. I mean, it, we tend to be naive. Go to the Amazon with your heart on your sleeve seeking ayahuasca, and I guarantee, unless you go well-connected, you'll drink a lot of swill before you get to somebody honest enough, responsible enough, conscientious enough to actually make it right and do it right. And in, in the case of shamanism, usually this is going on in cultures without literacy, without written languages, and, and so they don't hold conferences or publish proceedings or have the university uh, matriculation examinations in shamanism so on the surface a shaman is anyone who claims to be a shaman or who cares to claim but I, in terms of uh, real shamanic ability I think it only comes through either innate special abilities which probably means innate high sensitivity to neurological um, to neurotransmitters, exotic neurotransmitters, or it comes through an exposure to hallucinogens. Uh, this is a big argument in anthropology. Merci Eliade, who normally I am very deferent to, got this one completely wrong and decided on absolutely no evidence that what he called narcotic shamanism was decadent. Well, first of all, the use of the word narcotic in that context shows that he didn't know what he was talking about. <coughs> Nobody uses narcotics to shamanize. You go to sleep if you take narcotics. So what he wanted to say was that he felt hallucinogenic shamanism was decadent. But what is the alternative? Reliance on ordeals? Fasting or pathological personalities, maybe epileptics or uh, borderline schizophrenics or something like that. I think the, that these kinds of shamanisms that are not hallucinogenically based are derivative shamanisms that occur at a later stage of culture when the, the uh, plant-based shamanism has been disrupted by some some uh, factor like migration or the disappearance of the plants involved or something like that. Yeah. From what I understand, uh, the Lakota Indians didn't use hallucinogenics. They uh, 
accomplished all of this through, you know, uh, the drum beat and the song and, and things like that. And to this day, if you talk to the Lakota about the use of hallucinogenics as far as their shamans go, they say, it's not necessary. And yet in the Southwest, in the Southwest, you know, it's prominent. Yeah, well, I think acoustical uh, acoustical driving can carry you a certain distance. There are substitutes for hallucinogens, but they're neither as effective nor as uh, pleasant. I mean, ordeals are what many cultures get into. Well, I was just thinking, you know, along the lines of, you know, someone like Crazy Horse who came out of Lakota seemed to possess these, you know, abilities uh, and manifest them physically. Well, there's also the exceptional personality. The exceptional personality breaks all the rules, see. But, um, I don't think I'm going to say. So would you say, would you say then, um, Terrence, that there is a genetic proclivity, maybe in some individuals, if there is access to um, botanicals, and if there is no uh, historical evidence of shamanism prior to that, for that individual to start engaging in explorations? Yeah, I think so. You know, Maria Sabina claimed that she was never initiated into shamanism. She claimed that as a girl herding the cattle, she ate the mushrooms because she was hungry and that she was basically self-taught in shamanism in a society that actually had shamanic uh, lineages and institutions. Uh, in Madagascar, there are these highly evolved uh, ordeal poisons and this is where you take a, you take a plant, it, you feel like you're dying, you beg to die, you want to die, and you don't die. You come back from it a better person. But it is only because you were slammed up against death itself. Ordeals work, but they're not very pleasant. And the idea of putting yourself through an ideal like that once a week or twice a month as part of your professional practice is, is, uh, is pretty outrageous. The other thing that has to be said, and this is really important, and I think anthropologists have sold this one short, experiences are what we are least able to communicate to each other. We can describe machine parts, agricultural procedures, but anything in the realm of feeling our languages are woefully impoverished, and I don't think that's specific to English. I think it, it haunts all human experience, that it's hard to communicate how we feel. Well, so then there's a vast spectrum of experiences that come from plants, uh, and I dare say most of them unpleasant. Uh, let's start out with uh, eating Diefenbachia or something, you know, which causes your throat tissues to swell up and you feel like you're strangling. 
or, uh, uh, you know, Amanita muscaria is a very controversial uh, shamanic plant because some people say it's garbage. And Gordon Wasson, in his last book, called it the supreme entheogen of all time. Well, uh, clearly people are, are they talking about different things? Or are they interpreting the same experience differently? Uh, and so there are, uh, for example, you know, people who are fond of peyote, like if they haven't done their homework, like to imagine that they are taking this ancient, ancient hallucinogen that has informed the lives of the of the Sonoran and, and uh, the Indians of that area for thousands and thousands of years. Well, this is, as far as anybody can tell, complete bunk. Uh, there is no record of peyote use uh, older than four or five hundred years. Most of it is post-ghost dance. Before, if, when you go into the old Sonoran graves, the old archaeology of the Sonoran, the Tarahumara Indians, you find Sakura Secundifolia uh, yeah, beans, the little uh, black and red beans that you see in Mexico strung into jewelry, sold along the side of the roads. That's what those Indians took for thousands and thousands of years. We have a continuous record over about 4,000 years of these seeds being buried in graves with uh, ritual instruments indicating that they were buried with shamans. You couldn't give it away today because it is such a horrible experience. It's essentially sublethal sub strychnine poisoning. It can kill you effortlessly. It's clear that at some point fairly recently somebody tried peyote and said, my God, this stuff we've been taking for thousands and thousands of years is just horrible compared to this. This is great. <laughs> and immediately there was a transfer of loyalty. And Lord knows eating fresh peyote is no gourmet. <laughs> so the point there being cultures tend to um, define experiences differently and you can't tell what people are talking about until you really check in uh, traveling around the world you know you all you end up in certain cultures and they say oh we're so happy to have you here um, as our honored guest we would like you to eat uh, some of our national food let's say you're in Scotland and so they say, well, you must eat some haggis because uh, this is what we all eat. We all really love this. This is the best part of Scottish life. Mm -mm, boy, are you going to love this. Well, when it's finally served, you know, your jaw drops in disbelief uh, because it's ghastly unless you're Scotch. And well, but if you're Scotch, you dare not say so, you see, because a cultural myth has been built up around. I mean, do Italians knock red wine? Do the French denounce truffles? But certainly not. I know you're Scotch. Ah, true. Pate de foie gras is always my uh, example of this. 
So what you have to realize is that these things are culturally defined and often what works for the Nyanamamo or the Muinani or the Witoto won't work for you. Datura is a good example. Datura is a shamanic plant used by many people throughout uh, the world. All of them, I think, pharmacologically deprived. Otherwise, they wouldn't put up with what you have to put up with to take that stuff, you know. And uh, my interest, and I you know it was practical, was to find a hallucinogen that did what I wanted it to do and didn't do anything I didn't want it to do. And what I was interested in was, first of all, hallucinations because some people say I'm obsessed with it <laughs> fine my notion is that if you can see something that isn't there that's very much more convincing than just funny thoughts racing ideas strange physical sensations it's a powerful and boundary dissolving confrontation when you confront what is not there and so I find and this is a heresy for sure I, I'm not that fond of LSD I think it's a very sloppy drug I, I think you know you feel terrible the next day I always did I had tight headaches body aches people always say well it was not clean it had speed in it it had strychnine in it eh. Maybe, but even the good stuff is not, uh, and it wouldn't hallucinate for me the way I wanted it to. I could get hallucinations if I would smoke hash with it, but on its own, it was what I have described in other places as abrasively psychoanalytic, unpleasant, confrontational. And what I was interested in were hallucinations. So when I got to psilocybin, I remember after my first mushroom trip, I said, thank God we found this stuff. I'll never take LSD again. That wasn't quite true, but I'll bet I've taken it less than half a dozen times since my first psilocybin trip. So, uh, and, and in terms of the chemistry of these things, my conclusion from all this fiddling is that it's the indole hallucinogens that are at the center of the mandala they do what we want them to do with very little detrimental side effect LSD is one of them uh, ibogaine is one of them not one widely known we got to save something for our old age folks uh, <laughs> Harmine and harmaline, the beta-carbolines, when complexed with DMT, and then psilocybin. And I think that's the basic list. Well, those do, they, these are really the keys which open the lock very easily, very cleanly, very uh, dependably. And that's where I would put all of my attention. And... You know, even in that domain, you have to be somewhat uh, careful. My brother and I spent years tracking down a hallucinogen in the Amazon called ukuhe that 
was an orally active form of DMT, which we remember I said that DMT is destroyed in the gut. So we were fascinated to try and find this ukuhe because we wanted to know how it was possible that it could work orally. And also the ethnographic accounts claimed that uh, the people who used it spoke with little men. And we wanted to see these little men to see if they were the same little men we were trying to. Well, we had three expeditions to the Amazon before we finally closed in on this stuff. And when we finally got it, you know, with this tremendous sense of having attained the grail and having finally this was going to do it, this was going to be the one. To then we took this stuff and my God, it turned us every way but loose. Your heart feels like it's pounding its way out of the front of your chest. You vomit. Uh, you have tremoring of the limbs, on and on and on. So we go through this, live through it, wash off in the river and go looking for the shaman to lodge a complaint. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, yeah, well, it's hard to get used to. And uh, so then when we get it back home to the lab and do the high-pressure gas chromatography and all the rest of it and see what's really there, you see that the genetic component of the varola trees from which this resin is extracted is it's a mess. It's too many tryptamines. DMT, DET, 5-monomethyl tryptamine, 5-MAO DMT and several other cardioactive tryptamines. It looked like they'd swept the floor of an indole chemist's lab to put together the components of this plant. You don't want this. You don't, because you're, it's like taking ten drugs at once. You know, it's all running together. You can't tell whether you're Agnes or Angus. What you want is uh, a, a DMT source where when you put it in the grass, in the uh, grass chromatograph, no, in the uh, gas chromatograph, <laughs> you get one spike, that's NN-dimethyltryptamine, and all the rest is cellulose, a little DNA, and that's all, some minerals and salt. Uh, if if you don't have a clean source, then, you know, it's contaminated. So even that legendary shamanic hallucinogen, uh, when actually put to the to the uh, use test, wasn't able to, to pass it. Yeah. Yes, uh, going back to the DMT and uh, mushroom psilocybin, um, you were talking about... Uh, Taking psilocybin and then doing breath control is indistinguishable from a DMT trip. If you do it correctly, you can coax it. Um, since this is a learning tree and you're sort of in front there, maybe you could give us an idea of what it's like to coax five grand into, uh, I mean, I'm sure you won't be able to give us all the information, but maybe you can 
sort of enlighten us a little bit and we can sort of work in that direction. At least I can work in that direction. Well, you mean how do you get at the peak of a psilocybin trip to deliver you into DMT land? Yes, because sometimes I get a little jealous hearing you talk about DMT trip. <laughs> and I sit here and say, uh, you know, I want to find that stuff. And you know, Anyway, so... Well, the thing is... Uh, psilocybin will take you there if you have the courage and the stamina to tolerate the duration of, of the psilocybin revelation. Thank so you. first of all, you take a heroic dose, five, six, seven grams. Then when you're peaking, uh, well, you smoke cannabis. Then... You, you sit in silent darkness alone because I think the presence of other people always pins you to the surface right. with this stuff. You don't need somebody else. There. No matter if they're talking or not, they can just be in no, the room just, and you're aware of that. sitting and, there, yeah. then this is a different thing. Yeah. Uh, breathing, exhaling, breathing, exhaling, and then you form an intention for it to approach you. I mean, you say, I can feel it. I mean, it's almost a, it's a neighborhood. It's a pharmacological neighborhood. And, and you know how you may go to Little Italy, but there are no Italians on the street. But if you start, uh, you know, you have to somehow shake them out of the nest. And it, you simply ask for them to appear. I always hark back to that episode of I Love Lucy where she and Ethel are discussing how to contact the space people and Lucy tells Ethel, she says, well, I just say, come in, little green men, come in, little green men. And yeah, yeah, it's a big laugh now, but try it on 25 milligrams of psilocybin. <laughs> DMT thing is uh, these entities which you contact, although they may turn out to be toys created by someone unseen who is in fact in charge of this hyperdimensional maternity ward. But these toys, if that's what they are, are essentially teaching machines of some sort. They're trying to get you to perform this linguistic activity as far as the UFO thing is concerned I think it's uh, well it sort of requires some backgrounding I think that uh, there's something fundamentally wrong with our understanding of the world fundamentally wrong and what it is is that we believe that the past creates 
the present. That the present is the is the sum total of actions and situations that exist in the past. In other words, we believe that the horse pushes the cart. The horse doesn't push the cart. The cart is pulled. There is an attractor in the future. There is actually, uh, I think of history as a bowl down whose slope we are making our way. Well, since we are uh, in a in a situation where conservation of energy is important, where are we all going to end up? The bottom of the bowl, obviously. That's if you release a marble up on the rim, it's going to make its way down the bowl to the what's called the dwell point, the place where uh, the energy requirements are such that the forward momentum of, of the falling ball is satisfied by meeting the resistance of the bottom of the bowl. History is like this. We are being pulled forward by an attractor. It has somehow come into the human world and has pulled us out of animal organization. If this attractor were not present, we would still probably be cheerfully slinging excrement around in the canopy of some jungle tree. But because of the attractor, we have been pulled into social organization, technology, language, community, so forth and so on, and um, mystics and seers and visionaries are people who have a relationship to this attractor that is different from the rest of us. They can uh, glimpse aspects of this thing. And when I think of it this way, I, I always think of those jewel, the, the mirrored ball that they hang over the bar in a disco, and then they spin it and it throws reflections of light all over the room from the ambient lighting. Well, history is like this. Uh, the attractor at the end of time, which is below the event horizon of the present and thus impossible to anticipate its true form, uh, sends back through time distorted reflections of itself, which if you are struck by one of these distorted reflections, well then you begin to preach and cure and local conditions may damp your activity, and then you're what's called a nut. But if, in fact, local conditions support your activity so that you become a mean spreader, then you're suddenly a messiah, a teacher, a Buddha, a Christ, a Mohammed. That's what these people were. They were people who were, for reasons mysterious to themselves, I'm sure, in a relationship of resonance with the transcendental object, such that they, in a sense, embodied it. Well, um, in our own era, 
because of technology, and Jung was on to this when he wrote his book in 1948 called Flying Saucers, a Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. He said, the flying saucer is an image of the self that is, uh, haunts the skies of Earth as a compensatory effect to our alienation. Well, I think that that's exactly what's going on, except that he didn't realize how nuts and bolts that explanation was. The UFO is a mirage being cast backward into time by the transcendental object at the end of time. And that's why it has such a hair-raising aura of weirdness about it. It isn't a ship from another star system. I mean, how could anyone reasonably entertain that idea given the distances in time and what you find when you get here? I mean, who would make that trip who had any reasonable uh, way to spend their time? It's, uh, it's a uh, compensatory image that haunts time because time is a kind of hologram. Time is a fractal. And fractal means that the same pattern is embedded again and again in a relationship of self-similarity. So because the transcendental object exists somewhere ahead of us in history, there must necessarily be a tiny part of it somewhere nearby. And this, this is what the UFO is, I think. And this is why you, nobody's ever going to show you a chunk of it, and they're never going to uh, put an extraterrestrial on network television, because it isn't that kind of a creature. It's, uh, it's a compensatory image from the end of time. This leads me to an aspect of what I wanted to talk about, or what I very briefly and obliquely indicated this morning, which was when I was talking about um, uh, how we're halfway through history, but the rest of it has to happen in only 30 years. I think that we're moving towards something called concrescence. This isn't my word, it's Alfred North Whitehead's word. I think you can tell what it means. It means everything melts together into one thing. I think that from the very birth of the universe, this is bigger than the human species, bigger than the life of the earth. From the very first moments of the universe's existence, it has been itself under the domain, under the influence of an attractor. And this attractor is pulling everything into tighter and tighter states of self-reflective resonance and that now we are very close to this concrescent uh, event and that in fact human history I called it the shock wave of eschatology but I didn't talk much about what eschatology is as because well first of all it lies below the event horizon of the present historical epoch, but it won't always. 
it could rise above the horizon at any time. You know, 2000, 1996, you name it. But we have been too long under the spell of the idea that only the past creates the present. The present is actually largely created by appetite for the future. And um, this would seem to me a highly improbable idea had I not taken psychedelics and gotten this hyperdimensional view of the system that we're living in. And then you can see that, yes, history is not a random walk. It's not a series of undirected random fluctuations. History is a process of fractal self-complexification that builds on whatever it has achieved. And so upon the complexity of animal organization is laying the complexity of human language. Upon the complexity of human language is laid the complexity of symbolic signification of that language, i.e. writing. Upon writing is laid electronic technology and so forth and so on. So we are, in a sense, in the act of giving birth to or creating the object of our theologies, which is a kind of god or goddess, depending on you know, how you slice into it, how you feel about it. And the, the UFO is simply an indicator that we are so close now to encountering the the concrescent transcendental object that it's able to haunt the skies of earth and the imaginations of people who live in trailer parks. Uh, This is, uh, you know, you have to remember that history itself is is a violation of the laws of nature and history and its consequences are all around us. We don't have to argue about whether is history happening? I mean, if obviously it's happening, we're embedded late in it. But it's caused by the fact that ordinary nature, the nature of glaciers, chipmunks, anthills, termites, termite nests, and whale pods, has come, at least in the case of our species, under the influence of something which is literally fastened onto us and is now recreating us in its image. You know, it's taking a monkey body and it's saying, you know, stand it up, slide the eyes around to the front, oppose the thumb, shed the hair, enlarge the brain, put ideas into the brain, so forth and so on. I mean, we are being recast as something unimaginable to the rest of nature. And we are now fairly close to uh, figuring out what this is. This is why we are able to talk about human-machine symbiosis, virtual reality, downloading ourselves to the size of viruses in a nanotechnological domain, stuff like that. Did you say that index of concrescence to look at this current version 
last mistake he said to contact team president of the nation what's his name at Harvard the psychiatrist who's actually been a book now a number of people who's worked with who claim to have had fertilization yeah I would I'm more I agree with your idea that it's an index of the depth of concrescence though muddied by shrewd public relations types who are making a living off this stuff. I think the crop circles are more a more honest indication of how close we are to the transcendental body. I interviewed the person you mentioned at Harvard for a film we did in Prague a few months ago, and I... His name was? I'm a voice. Oh. Uh, and I had to ask him halfway through the interview, I said, well, do you detect anything in your own psychological makeup which makes you unfit to be doing this work? That was after he told me that he'd interviewed 500 women who had had fetuses removed from their bodies by space people. <laughs> and he said, you know, the amazing thing about this is there are no physical scars at all. <laughs> and I said, well, what does this suggest to you? And he said, advanced surgical techniques of which we have no knowledge. And I'm just, uh, my craft detector went, AWOL on that answer. Um, <coughs> the rules of evidence are not in suspension for the new age. And, uh, you know, people who recall their lifetime as the barber of Nefertiti or whatever uh, have serious. Uh, problem with what I call the rules of evidence. Uh, they don't seem to have ever heard of Occam's razor, which you study logic for ten minutes, and they tell you about Occam's razor. Do you all know what this is? It's a simple idea. Keep it next to you. Uh, hypotheses should not be multiplied without necessity. And there are a lot of unnecessary hypotheses running around, uh, especially in the New Age domain. Uh, I, I would study the impregnation effect more as an example of mass hysteria because, you know, being in the position that I am in, supposedly a revered teacher and a person of great uh, insight and all this hoopla and crapola, you occasionally get invited to dinner with the movers and shakers, and then you hear what's said when not on stage. And I have to tell you, there's enough cynicism to uh, satisfy a Renaissance pope among these people. Uh, they, they are taking the rest of us for a ride in many cases. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And uh, so now you've heard Terence McKenna's rap on the people who frequented what he called the New Age watering holes. 
and uh, at which, I should add, he made his living, one workshop at a time, and uh, it's also where I met him for the first time. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I hate to sound like a doubting Thomas here, but we're now only two years away from this uh, hypothesized uh, concrescence that Terence was talking about. And as much as I'd like to feel differently about it, I have to admit that I sure don't feel like the eschaton is any closer upon us than it was when he gave this talk. But I still don't think that his razzle-dazzle about 2012 and the eschaton is uh, really what drew us all to him uh, back then. Keep in mind that this talk was given almost 25 years ago, and in case you weren't active in the psychedelic community back then... I'm here to tell you that the information Terence was giving out here, particularly about DMT, was almost nowhere else to be found. There was no World Wide Web back in 1985, no arrowid.org, no podcast from the dopefiend.co.uk, and uh, while the war on consciousness still rages, we at least uh, now have a lot more information available and uh, significantly more people who think like you and I do. Just do the math. It's been reported that since Nixon began this so-called uh, war on drugs, that over 20 million people have been arrested in America for nonviolent drug offenses, uh, overwhelmingly for simple possession of cannabis. So here are 20 million people, mainly young, overwhelmingly young men of color, who have now lost all of their access to a decent life. They can't get student loans. They can't participate in politics. They can't get a decent job, even in a good economy. Basically, they're screwed, and they've all got friends and family who most likely think that their friend or relative is a victim of the government gone mad. My guess is that uh, this is a little time bomb of potential unintended consequences of the drug war that uh, maybe should be paid more attention to. Well, this has gone on a little long, but there are a couple emails I want to read, and uh, then I'll be out of here. Uh, The first one comes from Matthew, who says... Hi, Lorenzo. I've listened to the entire archive of the Psychedelic Salon over the last six months or so and want to say thank you. And, uh, Matthew, I'd better say thank you, too, and I hope you're okay after doing all that. (laughs) That's uh, pretty intense. He goes on, It is an incredible archive of great lectures filled with inspiration and thought-provoking ideas. It has opened my mind in many ways, along with the other podcasts I have recently discovered. I want to let you know about an archive of some McKenna talks. I don't think you have podcasted all of them yet, so maybe you aren't aware of this archive. Here's the link. And it's uh, a long link at uh, dmt-nexus.com, and I'll put that along with the notes to this podcast. Uh, And he concludes, thanks again, and keep up the greatest podcast on the net, Matthew. Well, uh, thanks for the kind words, Matthew, and uh, thanks for the link. As you say, there are a number of McKenna talks uh, on that site that I haven't heard or haven't podcast yet, and I probably won't get around to podcasting them uh, for quite a while, if ever. So uh, if you're still hungry for some more McKenna recordings, uh, this is a good place to look. And uh, I also received another link uh, to some McKenna podcasts from Eric, who says, I just wanted to let you know that I have uploaded my entire McKenna audio collection to the net. It totals three gigs and is missing a few of the talks that you have podcast, but I will add those in later. I have kept all of the original file names for these talks other than to add Terrence McKenna onto it. You've probably heard most of these. However, I think a few of them may interest you still. And uh, that's at uh, nndmt.com, uh, audio slash McKenna, and I'll put that link up. 
And he goes on, please feel free to download as much from here as you want and pass the link on as you please. I have a premium hosting plan with no bandwidth limitations, so no worries there. I also have many, many other things planned for upload, 75 plus gigs, and it will be linked to by the main page eventually. Peace and love, Eric. And uh, so thank you, Eric, as well. Uh, I guess I should uh, put up a standalone page on our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog where I can keep a growing list of these McKenna download sites. Uh, in fact, I've just added that little uh, tidbit to my work list. Uh, unfortunately, it's got quite a few things ahead of it at the moment, so I hope, don't know when I'll get that done. Now, uh, one more uh, comes from Nigel Brooks, who says in part, Hi, Lorenzo. I suspect you're a busy fellow, but I was nonetheless inspired to write and invite you to an art show my partners and I are putting on for one night at the Oceanside Museum of Art. That's Oceanside, California, on March 12th from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. I also just heard you interviewed on the Visionary Art Podcast out of the U.K. Although my art isn't specifically visionary in an Alex Gray alternative landscape sort of way, I do consider it a vision of my surreal dreaming. And the work I create is definitely informed by, among other things, insights and stories I have experienced in your podcast. So thanks for letting us know about that, Nigel. And uh, if uh, you or any of our fellow saloners happen to live in San Diego or Orange Counties and can make it to Nigel's show, well, it may be a chance for you to uh, find a few more of the others. You you just never know where you're going to meet your new best friend. And uh, an art show seems like a better place to look than a bar, but uh, hey, that's just my opinion. Well, that should do it for now, and uh, so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of our Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you are interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.